Approach pain relief from the ground up with Curex. Curex makes highly customizable over-the-counter insoles thanks to their dynamic arch technology, which provides different support for different arch types. They were developed by German scientists for the specific foot movements of various activities delivering the right support and cushion where it's needed the most. Curex makes the largest selection of activity-specific insoles for running, hiking, golfing, biking, soccer, tennis, or solely for walking and everyday wear. That's the Curex difference, and it can make a difference for your patients. For a free sample, email curexinside at curex.us. That's C-U-R-R-E-X inside at curex.us. Hello and welcome to JOSPT Insights, the podcast that aims to help you translate quality research to quality practice. I'm Claire Ardern, the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Orthopaedic and Sports Physical Therapy. It's great to have you listening today. So welcome to the second part of our two-part episode with Dr. Stuart Warden, lead author on the recent JOSPT paper titled Optimal Load for Managing Low-Risk Tibial and Metatarsal Bone Stress Injuries in Runners, The Science Behind Clinical Reasoning. If you haven't heard episode one, we highly recommend you check it out as we cover key principles one through four before diving into this episode with the rest of our key principles. We hope you enjoy. Okay, and so I think that takes us to key principle number five, which I think is one of the main ones that everyone has been waiting for, and that is how do we recommence and then progress these individuals with bone stress injuries back to running? Getting back to running, you've gone through that first sort of acute phase of of the process where you've got symptoms during walking and even you might have resting pain, night pain, and so on. And so once that settles down, then the question becomes, okay, when can I start running? And if we go back historically, it used to be a certain time after sort of diagnosis. It would be six, eight weeks, 10 weeks that, okay, you're so far out from, you know, a certain period of time period out from your injury, you can start running now. But we now know that you can do this sort of optimal loading approach where, like I said earlier, that optimal load is the load that basically doesn't produce symptoms. So once someone's pain-free with with walking during normal sort of life and they're pain-free during activities of daily living, then they can start considering uh, returning to running. And so normally we require an athlete to be pain-free for at least five days. So they've got to be pain-free for five consecutive days during normal life. And then we check that they have a, uh, a pain-free hop to make sure that they can tolerate uh, higher forces. And if they can, they can tolerate a hop and they're pain-free for five days, then we can start a progressive walk-run program. And there's lots of these walk-run programs out there. There's, there's not any that have been really proven. We do know that they're safe in that people do get back to running. People don't break their tibia or break their metatarsal during these programs. They're a progressive program that's guided by symptoms. So we know they're safe. Whether they get back someone back to running quicker, we don't know. No one's really studied the outcome of these programs beyond, yes, you can run again. But they sort of make logical sense that you want to increase your load progressively. You don't want to go from just walking around to sprinting down the, down the road. The programs that we often use involve getting up to 30 minutes of walking, and this is dedicated walking. So you go out and you walk for 30 complete minutes. If you're pain-free during that 30 minutes during the activity, you're pain-free later that evening and you're pain-free the next morning, then you can move on to the next phase of the running program. That may be nine minutes walk, one minute jog. 
and doing that three times. So it's 30 minutes again of dedicated exercise, but it's nine minutes walk, jog for a minute. And a jog by jog, we mean usually about 50% pace. You know, a lot of people ask us, you know, what does jog mean? Jogging means really easy exercise. So it's just increasing the load a little bit, followed up with nine minutes walk again, one minute jog, nine minute walk, one minute jog. So three repetitions. If they can tolerate that, then you go to two minute jogs. So you're progressing through, you're incrementally increasing the amount that someone's running and making sure they can tolerate it. If they can't tolerate it in that, for example, symptoms arise, then they need to go back in the program. They need to regress a little bit or they need to hold on before they they progress any further. The way that you all framed this in the paper is just so well done, especially from the point of view of the patient. You really make it clear that this is not a cardiovascular exercise. This is not return to running as they used to know it. It's it's partially a bone loading intervention and then also partially building tolerance to running. I think sometimes patients hear return to running and understandably think return to running means running as they used to, but that's not really the point here. They really still need to be getting that cardiovascular fitness elsewhere during this phase. I completely agree. So these return to run programs are not to build fitness. They're not to gain running fitness. Uh, They're basically to load the bone and to see how much the bone can tolerate without interfering with the healing process. Runners need to get their fitness elsewhere during the return to run program. And this needs to be spelled out to, to people that this return to run program is not return to run a half marathon or marathon. This is just purely to get you back running. It's not to build fitness. And the program starts with increasing how long someone can run before they increase the intensity. So it's important to make people aware that they're not going out to run fast. We're going to increase how far they can run first before we start increasing the load or the intensity that they run. This is echoed everywhere throughout physical therapy. So it's it's funny that it applies to bone as well. It's a it's a progressive overload. You calm everything down and then we build it back up again. And there we go. We've considered all these key principles and we're working with the patient while they rehab. They're back running. They feel great. So how do we prevent this happening again? Let's go into your sixth and final key principle reducing risk of subsequent injury. Once you, someone gets back to running, they've gone through a return to run program and they're, they're back to running. We know that a history of a bone stress injury is by far the leading risk factor for another bone stress injury. And these, the recurrent bone stress injuries don't often occur at the same site. You know, it's not at the same location. They're usually elsewhere, but we know that, you know, that's the single most predictive factor that determines whether someone's going to have bone stress injury is that they've had a previous one. And what that signals is that there's some underlying, often intrinsic risk factor, something within that sort of individual. And particularly we know in, you know, for example, female cross-country runners, you know, they're participating in a lean sport where they have to maintain, or they, they like to maintain a certain weight. They may have some eating issues or, or insufficient intake of calories. They may have some, some menstrual dysfunction, you know, and, and they may have this sort of relative energy deficiency in sports sort of syndrome. Those things all need to be addressed. Some of this, uh, these risk factors are outside of, sometimes outside the domain of physical therapy. So you really have to work as a multidisciplinary group uh, with nutritionalists, psychologists, physicians, endocrinologists, and to really work out why did an athlete get a bone stress injury? So in order to reduce the risk of an injury, you have to know why it's occurring. And that's different in different athletes. 
So you may have to address nutritional needs, energy availability, hormonal status, and, and so on. But if we're thinking about from the loading standpoint, um, we do want to look at how that bone is sort of being loaded. And really, if you look at the tissue level as to why bone stress injuries occur, it's because either you've introduced too much load to a bone or your bone can't tolerate the load. So you either have a, a bone structural mass that is cannot tolerate the load that you're introducing. So in order to prevent them, you can either improve your bone health or you can reduce the load that you're applying to it. To improve your bone health, it is a difficult thing to do. It's not like muscle where you can go and strengthen and six weeks later, you'll be stronger. Bone takes a lot longer period of time to develop and to adapt. So it really needs a, a concerted effort. But we do know that people who have played multi-directional sort of ball sports when they're younger are at much lower risk of a bone stress injury than those athletes who didn't play those multi-directional sports. So we know that those multi-directional sports induce adaptation within bone. And you know, we have some, some unpublished data that we're working on right now that's comparing cross-country athletes, female cross-country athletes, those who played ball sports when they were younger. And by younger, we mean before puberty, when the bone is, is most adaptive to load versus those who just ran. And it's interesting what we've found is these, these big, big differences in metatarsal structure. Those who played ball sports have much bigger and stronger metatarsals than those who didn't, even though they're all collegiate level cross-country athletes. So you really want to develop and build a strong skeleton. And that's primarily done before puberty it becomes much harder after puberty to adapt bone. Um, you really have to do it when young. And that's why we get into discussions about premature specialization in sport. And if you've got a, a young runner who just runs, then long-term, that's not going to be beneficial for them. You really shouldn't specialize until you get into high school. And they should be encouraged to do multi-directional sports for example, anything that sort of involves jumping, basketball, soccer, gymnastics, those sorts of high impact multi-directional loadings when young to build a big robust skeleton so they can tolerate running loads as they get older. Is there anything specifically so okay, well, unfortunately this person did run when they were when they were prepubescent, they were just just avid from the start. Is there anything we can do for them now? We are in the athletic training room. We're talking to the strength coach about what we can implement into their program um, as this collegiate runner continues to struggle with recurrent bone stress injuries. You've got a runner who is beyond puberty and they've missed that sort of window of opportunity, it's called, to adapt the skeleton. Is there anything we can do now to improve their bone health? And and there is. Most of the ways of doing that involve introducing sort of plyometric type loads. They're loads that are generated quickly. We know bone responds best to high magnitude loads that are introduced at a high rate of speed, so quick loads. So a lot of plyometric jumping type exercises can be used to try and increase bone strength and the ability to tolerate different loads. But you have to do this with caution because once you introduce uh, plyometric and, and high impact load sort of activities, then you can quickly overload the bone. So you, you know, even though you're trying to prevent bone stress injuries, by introducing these new high impact loads, you can actually go the opposite way and cause a bone stress injury. So the recommendation is that if you're going to think about adding uh, something new to someone's program, 
then either reduce the intensity of a workout during a week or replace one of the workouts with the bone loading activity so that you're getting potentially that, hopefully that adaptation from the, the plyometric type exercise, but you're not overloading the bone and actually causing a bone stress injury. And that bone loading program is, you touched on in the paper, that's like a jump program. That's the that's the, the big plyometric. That's the biggest takeaway from it, right? Is there anything else there? Or- no, I think that the plyometric is, the high impact sort of thing. You can do high resistance exercise training. I know a lot of collegiate level athletes and cross country and so on are doing weight training. And we know now that even though they're potentially mostly an endurance athlete, they should be doing strengthening exercise. So low reps, high load loading, and that does load the skeleton as well. But it's the plyometric type, high rate of speed, high load, uh, where you're really focusing on the push-off. You're not so focused on the landing. You're you're focused on that explosive sort of push-off, that muscle contraction. And and you get the dual benefit of loading the bone, but also loading the muscle. So you're actually increasing the power within those muscles as well, which, which benefits their running. And then also I wanted to just, another one of my big favorite takeaways from the paper was the fact that bone um, gets bored and um, it doesn't like, like repetitive, all these repetitive loads. Um, And so you, you introduced like a four hour rule that I think would actually be really valuable when designing programs for these patients as well. Do you want to touch on that? Bone is, is a special tissue and the, the cells in bone are special as well that when they're exposed to a certain stimulus and, and by stimulus in, in this case, we're talking about a mechanical load and so after that stimulus has been introduced for a period of time, they get bored, they get used to it. And so they start, they basically go deaf to that stimulus. And it's been shown in, in a number of different animal models that bone cells basically become bored and deaf after about a hundred back-to-back cycles. And so if you think about going out for a run, how long does it take for you to go for a hundred loading cycles on each leg? Not very far. And so running is not, a great bone exercise. Even though you're hitting the ground multiple times, after a certain period of time, the bone cells go, well, I've seen that and they switch off. We can use that information about that sort of, we call it desensitization in our exercise design. We know that you don't need to have a lot of loading cycles. So you don't have to do over a hundred jumps. You could do low numbers of jumps, but you can break it up throughout the day. Because in addition to the bone cells becoming deaf, we also know that they turn back on again after the the load's taken away. And it takes about four to eight hours for the bone cells to resensitize and become responsive again. So you can do some jumping program in the morning, short, you know, it doesn't have to be a long period of time. Then you can wait for hours, wait for the bone cells to resensitize and then redo it again. You know, you could think about that as well. You might run in the morning and that's going to put those bone cells to, to sleep after you've run, don't then go and uh, immediately do a plyometric exercise program. Wait, do your plyometrics later in the day once those bone cells resensitize again. We've talked a lot about playing with a runner's rehabilitation as far as volume and frequency and how to modify the load that's going through that injury site. Where, where does modification to the runner's form play into rehabilitation here? So we talked about increasing bone strength to prevent bone stress injuries. The other way you can potentially prevent is reduce the load to a bone. We re- usually reserve this to people who have had multiple bone stress injuries. They've tried lots of different things and things haven't worked. Then we start thinking about, well, maybe we need to change their running mechanics. Uh, we need to change how they run. And there's lots of different ways that people are trying to 
reduced loading, not only in bone, but all sort of structures in the lower extremity, whether it be tendon, joints, and, and so on. It may be asking a runner to run more softly. It may be transitioning them to a more minimalistic or sort of barefoot running type scenario or training them up to be able to run with a forefoot strike pattern to go from a rear foot to forefoot strike pattern. You need a good 12 months to transition. You can't just do it overnight. But one of the ones or the, the approaches that has shown particular promise, particularly with bone stress injuries of the tibia, is changing someone's cadence. So encouraging them to run with shorter, quicker steps. And so increasing the number of steps they take by about 5 to 10%. And we know that when they do that, by increasing your cadence, it does reduce your step length. That does reduce your braking forces. It does potentially reduce the loading on the bone as well. And there was a, a recent paper that is coming out in British Journal of Sports Medicine that is done by Brian Heiderscheidt, who's a, an editor for, for Just, that showed that in collegiate level athletes, one of the biggest sort of risk factors for a bone stress injury was a low step rate. So a low cadence. And so if you flip that around, then potentially a higher cadence is protective of a bone stress injury. If you've got an athlete that you've tried sort of everything, they're still pulling their hair out, then you can consider increasing someone's cadence to reduce their loading. Increasing cadence is not going to change the metatarsal bone stress injury risk though because you're still going to be loading through there, but it does reduce loading through that tibia. You know, I haven't really heard anyone go into nuance of how cadence affects force through the lower extremity differently when or between tibial and metatarsal BSIs. And so I think how you cover that in this paper is really helpful to clinicians. So, so thank you for that. And I think that really brings us to the end of this episode. Stuart, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know I learned a ton reading this paper. I know listeners are going to learn a ton with this episode, and I'm really excited to put it out. So, so thank you and thank your co-authors for all the time you put into this research and this paper. Congratulations on the paper, and thank you so much for sharing all your knowledge. You were awesome. Well, thanks. That was fun. And thank you, as always, for listening to JOSPT Insights. listening to this episode of JOSPT Insights. For more discussion of the issues in musculoskeletal rehabilitation that are relevant to your practice, subscribe to JOSPT Insights on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google, or your favorite podcast app. If you like JOSPT Insights, help others find us. Tell your friends and colleagues and rate and review us. To keep up to date with all the latest JOSPT content, be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at JOSPT and Facebook, where JOSPT official. Talk with you next time.